Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I had to sit down with Jay-Z and tell him, Snoop is the most famous rapper ever. What'd he say? He agreed. He did? Not really. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to break down a definitive argument for the existence of supernatural spirits. What form is your apology to me going to take? Are you going to be public? Are you just going to do it in private? Or like, <laughs> like, have you thought about that? I, uh, I really was feeling so strongly that the apology was going to go the other way. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, like the the spirits of the trees and mountains should be compelling you <laughs> to do the right thing here. Uh, I talked to this tree in my yard uh, on my way here about how to handle that. And, you know, I got some sage advice, but people will have to wait till the second segment. <laughs> That's right. So so in the first segment. Uh, Get it? Sage advice. Oh, I only it wasn't intentional. It's more after the fact. And sage doesn't grow on trees, does it? Bushes. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, I think, yeah. Like I don't think any herbs or spices grow on trees. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh-oh, we're gonna get a lot of. Sh- you know, <laughs> actually, uh, cumin comes from. The- All right. So, but before that, we're gonna do an opening segment that we had already already recorded and that we had to preempt because of the Will Smith news that uh, right. Uh, that was the opening segment from last time. And the, the irony was, it, like, by the time we actually released that episode on Will Smith, like, nobody gave a shit. Like, <laughs> nobody uh, cared. Zero people gave a shit. I, it was over. These, fuck, yeah. these fucking news cycles, man. I know. We got we to, like, switch to being, like, a, a weekly podcast to catch some of this stuff. I know. Anyway, so, um, yeah, let's get to that. It's on dehumanization, forgiveness, and revenge. And did we even say, uh, did we make clear that the reason we're back here is because the podcast started here nearly 10 years ago? Yeah. I know it was a long time ago, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm sure you remember that, but that, that was part invited, of That we got invited back for that reason. Right. Uh, not, that, not that we just happened to be in Costa Rica again. No, no, no. Right. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if we made that clear. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought I, it was You feel more important. I thought, yeah. <laughs> we were invited back. It is a little weird, and you can cut this if you want. It is a little weird being invited to some things like this because the, you know, the people are very generous and they cover most of our expenses, but there are other people around us who are filthy rich, mm-hmm. and it just like kind of I kind of feel like I don't belong, you know. 
I definitely do. I get un very uncomfortable around super rich people. But having said that, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, Diderot had some problems with Catherine the Great, but he was happy to get, you know, <laughs> like, free trips to Russia. That's right. That's right. <laughs> not, we're not hubristic at all. Um, no. I, you know what, Tamler? I forgive them. I like forgive for the rich. rich people. Yeah. yeah. Well, in any case, we're very grateful. And um, yeah, so what do we have to talk about today? Well, you missed my segue. Like the whole... Uh, <laughs> it just completely went over your head. Wait, so say it again. I, I said, but you know what, Tamler? I forgive them. I, <laughs> I forgive the rich people. I, I see. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know if that was so obvious. That was pretty <laughs> subtle, especially after having some bourbon. No, that's right, because the paper isn't literally entitled The Role of Forgiveness. Well, it's not literally. It's literally subtitled that, but... <laughs> a subtitle is literally a kind of title. It is. Well, this is <laughs> further research to investigate whether Sharif, Sharif 1961. <laughs> I'm just going to say Sharif 1961 after any claim I make from now on. I think that's Lawrence of Arabia, Sharif 1961. <laughs> I should I, move. I will put that in the last one. <laughs> All right. Rehumanizing the self after victimization, the roles of forgiveness for revenge. That's a paper we're going to talk about in this opening segment. I want to shout out um, shit, and I had it up a second ago, and then I lost it. It's from Chemtrup. He gave us this idea. He said, here's a study for very bad wizards. Science now says revenge is bad. Tamler and Peas, your move and pointed us to this paper, which do you want to describe it since you're the psychologist here? Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, so this is a paper by Schumann and Walton. I, I know Greg. Sorry, Gregory. <laughs> Sorry for what's to come. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the paper does a few studies testing the hypothesis that forgiving people who transgress against you is superior to revenge in as much as it makes you more humanized because so the claim goes when you're transgressed against like when tamler says rude shit to me which i uh, never do which he always does i feel like less of a person right like i am i feel dehumanized by his treatment of me i could either get back at him <laughs> so you start like putting more pins and voodoo <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. I could, I could give, get back at him. You know, I could uh, start a, a blood feud that will, that will, for generations to come, yeah. uh, to pit the Pizarros against the summer. Our two daughters. Will Our just, two daughters. Like, like, it's just a fight to the death right now. They are currently, as we speak. Or I could forgive him. And so the claim is that if I forgive, I get some of that humanity back because. Presumably, the act of forgiveness requires actions, traits that are uniquely human, like a sort of a moral moral sense that is that is more. It's associated human. with human. It's associated humanity. with humans. Yeah, and so 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 four studies to try to demonstrate this. I just have a couple of questions just about the setup and about like the construct of humanness, uh, especially when we're guarding yourself. Yeah, like so I know studies of dehumanization of others where yeah. you feel you know like people dehumanize the jews and the holocaust people dehumanize uh people of you know darker skin often and that's uh that's had some tragic and terrible results but what is this idea of perceived self-humanness is that a thing is that really a thing i all right so 
cards on the table, I have a problem with even the concept of dehumanization. And mm -hmm. I don't know if we've talked about it before, but to me, dehumanization, yeah, we have. I think so with Paul. Yeah, with Paul. It's like a, it's a metaphor, you know, sure, people describe like the Jews as vermin. Like that's true. That's true. But whoopee. But, you know, <laughs> but, but the claim, like the real deep claim that we actually perceive these people to not be human seems to go rather against a lot of things, right? And I think as Paul pointed out in one of his articles, um, you, know, you, you attribute guilt and agency to people. Like you, you, you say, oh, the Jews were greedy or they harmed, you know, they, they harmed me. Those are very human things to do, right? Like they, you can't. My dog is greedy. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But you know, presumably you blame them less because to the extent that they have agency, maybe you blame them more, but, but there is right. a lot of attribution of agency that justifies mistreating uh, people. As like one of the scales is that shows humans at various stages of evolution, right? From like pure uh, apes all the way to like upright walking human beings. Like it's like treated as a scale of like, literally you think that these people are less evolved. They're not homo sapiens. And I don't think that that's, I think there are a lot of problems with that whole literature. But on top of that, as you point out, it's one thing to say that we don't <laughs> see other people as human. It's yet another thing to say that you don't see yourself as human. Here is where it just strains credulity, where it's like, look, like if what you want to say is that you feel bad about yourself right. or you feel like you were out of control, um, you feel hurt, you feel like emotional, maybe those things are associated more with being less agentic, but who the fuck doesn't see themselves as human? Right. Like just the fact that you're thinking about this <laughs> stuff at all is, is like the, a testament to the fact that you are a member of a homo sapien species. Yeah. I, I, I guess in both cases, but especially in this case, is this supposed to be metaphorical in a way that is helpful? Like, is, is the metaphor somewhat helpful? And I just don't see how, like, especially with this, I think the idea is, so when they describe this, participants described a variety of powerful dehumanized sentiments in response to being harmed. One participant reported feeling treated as though I was, were a toy rather than a human being when her boyfriend tried to pressure her into having sex. Like clearly that's a metaphor, that's analogous, right? It's yeah. not some generalized state of mind. It's very specific to the offense that right. you're reacting it's, against. It's, it's like, not like you, she then goes around thinking I'm a Lego, right? <laughs> Remember, do you remember that R. Kelly song, You Remind Me of My Jeep? <laughs> I want to ride you. <laughs> He's just going to sing this whole time because in we're, studio, in a studio. we're in a studio. Yeah. Um, the interesting claim is a, a very specific, narrow one that, in fact, you are treating people as if they are not homo sapiens. The broader claim that you are attributing characteristics or even using metaphors, you, you are like a pig because you're greedy. Have I dehumanized you? I mean, I... I don't know. I, I like, or if but again, I say, it's like yourself though is the thing that I'm like in right, regards but even to then, this. Side, but let's this even side. say like this is another problem. So this is, a, I think, a deep problem with the way that this is even conceptualized for other people. Like if you say Michael Jordan took flight like a bird, technically, it ought to, on the theory that Brock Bastion and these people have presented, ought to mean that you have dehumanized Michael Jordan. And I think it's just being a, the concept of dehumanization is being abused. What people are trying to study, I think they, they say they're studying dehumanization. They're really studying treating people poorly. And in this case, it's even worse. It's you feeling like shit, right? So yeah. 
let me just read the, their overall description of the present research. In the current article, we examine the agency of victims to reduce their feelings of dehumanization following an offense by either forgiving their perpetrator or taking revenge against them. We predicted that victims who forgive will feel more rehumanized. <laughs> that it's like a, it's like they've been dehydrated and yeah, just exactly. added some water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They'll feel, ooh, I feel more human. Oh, what's, man. What's that That was feeling? good forgiveness. Oh, man. <laughs> feeling. Uh, I'm, look, I'm standing up straighter. I'm not climbing <laughs> on trees anymore. I'm, you know. Uh, than those who take revenge, at least in part because they feel that their act of forgiveness is consistent with moral values, values that are fundamental to being human. I think it's literally just this. When you forgive, you're doing a good moral thing, and I don't think animals can do good moral things. I don't think that when you when they when they show the measures though yeah, of I have some, some of this stuff, yeah. it's not just it's not just that. Um, yeah, well, but, there's a bait and switch, I think. Okay. okay, so okay, so here is a measure developed by Bastian and colleagues, 2013 where participants rate themselves on four items assessing qualities that are often seen as fundamental to being human and that distinguish people from machines and objects. So, so no, sometimes... No, it's not animals, it's machines and objects. No, sometimes, like, the dehumanization literature is about not being animalistic and sometimes it's about not being machine-like. And th those actually are different, very different ways. Very different, yeah. So, so this is, like, maybe, like, used as a means rather than an end in itself. So you should be on board with this, I would say, <laughs> this measure, you know? <laughs> well, let's see. I'll read the measure. Okay. We'll see. Uh, this is seven-point scale, I believe. I felt like I was open-minded, like I could think clearly about things. Like, that's a measure of human... <laughs> that's, that's a measure of so many things. Like if I'm f hazy because I've been drinking, I'm not. That's you're not, not a measure. That's not you're human. a machine. Right. You're, you're looking. You're you're giving off machine vibes. Right Number now. two ways in which I can measure humanness. Quote: I felt that I was emotional, like I was responsive and warm, which, by the way, is cardinal sin of measurement here. I felt that I was emotional, comma like I was responsive and warm is one item, and that's three right. things. That's like that's. <laughs> I, I felt that I was emotional. It's arguably a... Like, if I'm angry? Yeah. Like, what do I say to that? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to defend this, but keep I was going. going. I, I love this. Yeah. <laughs> this I, is I awesome. Will, I will. Uh, uh, quote, third one. I felt like I was mechanical and cold like a robot. This is a... I mean, that one is pretty straightforward. Straight, it has yeah, yeah. base validity, as they say. Yeah. I felt superficial like I had no depth. That's just weird. I don't know what that. What does that even That's mean? That's so weird. Well, how could you interpret that? You're on mechanical Turk, which, by the way, they were, uh, or at least or in prolific, some of this stuff. Yeah, or prolific, maybe. No, I think it was mechanical Turk. Yeah, but they uh, use both. But I don't remember okay. which one. For but yeah, like that's one where you're just like, I mean, like I'm getting paid like five bucks for this or whatever. Um, it's like I felt superficial, and then like as I if no to clarify, I, like you had no doubt. <laughs> In case you had any questions about what that might mean. Yeah. So like two-dimensional or just... And is a machine deep? Yeah. Or not like, I mean, shallow? Like is it, right. you know, yeah, isn't it I... called deep learning for a reason? <laughs> it's true. It's, it's not called shallow, superficial learning. And what if I've lost some weight? And, <laughs> you know, like I'm not as deep as I used to be. That was terrible. Yeah. Um, okay. Then there's four items assessing qualities that are seen as features that distinguish humans from animals. This is a subscale. I felt like I was refined and cultured. Like, I guess animals can't be refined and cultured, but it's not clear to me that that's... 
I would, I would, I feel that almost yeah. all the time. I am, yeah. Mm. I felt like I was, <laughs> I felt like I was rational and logical, like I was intelligent. Mm. Now, now, is that supposed to be dehumanizing or humanizing? It's supposed to be in this. You point to the thing I was saying earlier. In this subscale, it's supposed to be humanizing because compared to animals, we're rational. Right. But when you put it in the uh, right machine subscale. Exactly rational and logical is yeah. not human so so which is it right. this is just terrible this is terrible measures Do you I, feel like an effective altruist <laughs> i felt like i lacked self-restraint comma like an animal <laughs> what? <laughs> what? what so is that like how do you interpret that like there's two different kinds of n not feeling self-restraint or lacking self-restraint there's one which is like a human like a one human. that that's an animal or is it like only animals lack self-restraint because I would argue that animals and humans are about the same when it comes to self-restraint. Absolutely. Like, you know, my dog is trained very well to wait for his treat, right? right. Like he actually exercises a whole lot of self-restraint. Tamler has already Almost drank a not. glass of whiskey without even thinking about it. <laughs> um, this, there is a conceptual, theoretical, conceptual crisis in social psychology. <laughs> I've been waiting to hear you like say that. This is great. well, the dehumanization of literature just brings this shit out of me too because it's just it's terrible. Okay. I didn't even know we were going to talk about this scale to some because there's <laughs> okay. so many other things. With there are, this. Yeah, oh, that's right. I just wanted people to get a real no, sense of what's being measured it's because the, the voodoo doll one it. makes this look like a fucking you know, yeah, no, like like, like, like physics. Yeah, <laughs> I I felt like I was unsophisticated. Reverse scored. Yeah. Uh, all right like you know fancy cats not notwithstanding <laughs> participants yeah indicated the response on some point scale so that's that's what you're, they did you either feel dehumanized or you're like a redneck according to <laughs> <laughs> that's right so so uh in this in this one people just were told like remember a time that you felt like somebody committed an offense against you and now fill out this this scale and then now tell us uh, whether you forgave them or whether you sought revenge and then and then they fill right. out it. Yeah. So, I mean this is a boring objection but what they're asking is like remember some time where you somebody wronged you what did you do and how did you feel yeah. like they could be this could be like five years ago yeah how did you feel and now you're filling out that scale that uh that you just read like the idea that that's a meaningful measure of like how it really is when you really forgive or, or take revenge. In this first study, like weirdly, so they measure uh, self-humanity right after you said whether you were offended, like hurt. So so remember Tamla or a time where you were hurt? Got it? Yeah. Remember that? Okay. Like how do you feel? Ago. Right. <laughs> how do you feel you felt the self-humanity scale? And now did you seek revenge or forgiveness? And now fill out the self-humanity scale uh. again what yeah i and, didn't catch that and it turns out i'm pretty sure and it turns out that seeking revenge raises your self-humanity also like forgiveness right. and like both of them raise your sense of self-humanity well they say that in the uh yeah, the thing in, that i read the though, it's in the graph the yeah yeah but also it's not taking revenge it's remembering about having taken revenge or remembering about having forgiveness raises on this meaningless scale like a couple points or yes. something like that that's right, right. that's right yeah. Yeah. but either way like just so just you know if you want to just boost your humanist just think of an offense that was committed against you and then just think of how you responded you're guaranteed to get a little bit of a boost right even if you took revenge you know right 
Yeah, that's right. Just, I don't need to think about past times to feel human. <laughs> I feel like I can just look at my arms and legs. <laughs> You're taking that too literally. <laughs> they, so can, can we talk about the, uh, the voodoo doll? Well, yeah, let's, can, can we just go through study too? Cause this is an imagined offense. Yeah. Like a, we a... held constant the offense and participants response by asking participants to imagine an offense when somebody treated them with lack of respect or dignity. Uh, the highest proportion of offenses were committed by coworkers. These typically involved disparaging behaviors such as being criticized, <laughs> just <laughs> criticized, <laughs> yelled at, or having one's suggestions ignored. Particip participants indicated that this treatment made them feel, quote, insignificant and like I didn't mean a damn. Drawing on these reports, we asked participants to imagine having been ostracized or criticized by a coworker. Oh, so there was like a pilot study, I see. Uh, so yeah. ridiculous. Drawing on these reports, we asked participants to imagine having been ostracized and criticized by a coworker and then responding with either forgiveness or revenge. So here they just like, we're just supposed to imagine what revenge would be like. Would it be like to kill him and his whole family or would it be like to uh, ostracize them or criticize them back? Like, we don't know. It's, a, it's you know, it's Colombian necktie every time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we predicted that participants who imagined having forgiven their coworker would feel more rehumanized than participants who imagined having taken a revenge. Uh, we also assess negative emotions, positive emotions, as well as authentic and hubristic pride. Just, just throw in just a bunch of these con yes. constructs just for the hell of it. Yeah. But b both before and after responding to the offense with either forgiveness or revenge. So now you're just like imagining it. Like you don't even have to have somebody victimize you in the past. You can just imagine them and then like imagine how you would respond. The power of the imagination, Tamla. Yeah, you, you know. should try it. Um, by the way, you know, and you said they toss in a bunch of these measures and look, they're better. They're better at stats than I am, but they didn't pre -re like they only pre-registered one of these studies. Yeah. Well, that's which that's the big issue. It's a, it is a red flag for me, but it's 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 like number 95 <laughs> on the problems with this whole idea. I like what you said before a theoretical. Yeah, it's a it's a night. It's sort of a nightmare. So so uh, so, yeah, uh, imagining uh, that you were offended and imagining that you took i think they actually had people did they have people write down what they would imagine i don't think so i think they just said did you forgive or did you re like take revenge right next participants were randomly assigned to imagine either forgiving or taking revenge against so the they were just assigned yeah. to do it it's, it's an experiment <laughs> they imagined that they had been selected by their company to be one of oh they were told what kind of revenge they okay. imagined that they had been okay. selected by their company to be one of three peer reviewers for the transgressing coworker, and that their company treated these peer reviews seriously so their review would carry weight in personnel decisions those in the forgiveness condition then read in the end, you use the review as an opportunity to forgive your coworker. You are appropriately Wait, honest. What? You're appropriately honest about your coworker's strengths and weaknesses, and this results in a generally favorable review. Oh, this is terrible. That's not forgiveness. That's just you have like some integrity <laughs> as your as your job. You might still think they're total fucking assholes and uh, you want to kill them, but you're not gonna like. Yeah, this is just a like were you petty or not kind of thing. Those in the revenge condition read, in the end, you use the review as an opportunity to get back at your coworker. You focus on your coworkers' weaknesses rather than their strengths. 
can't. I feel like we just need to get right to. Uh. All right, like yeah, we gotta get to the voodoo doc because we're gonna we're gonna get good. But I but I want to say just study three. The limitation of studies one and two that they were imagined that they were they remembered that like none of these cases you're actually forgiving or taking revenge uh, is that. But they didn't choose that. That that neither included a no offense control condition. Right, which which that's the limitation. Which would confirm that dehumanizing yeah. actually occurred and not. Yeah, like yeah, compared right. compared to not being insulted at all. <laughs> Con conclude that this thing we made up, like how self-humanized you feel. <laughs> so they wanted to uh, determine whether or not, like of all of the potential, uh, you know, downstream effects of being insulted by a coworker. This sounds like a very millennial uh, paper to write. Um, is that it really does? Yeah. <laughs> is that you that you might want to feel like you want to harm yourself, right? So. You could ask, like, does this make you want to hurt yourself? Which would have maybe have some problems. So not these authors, but other authors have developed a measure that I think I thought maybe this would speak to you, given your penchant for believing a penchant. In, <laughs> for believing in supernatural causality. Um, there's a voodoo doll <laughs> with up to 51 pins. Why 51? I have no idea. 51. But they like... show you a voodoo doll and they say, this is you. <laughs> and they say, this is real. This, this is, this has, on the, on the right, there is a voodoo doll with 51 pins in it. And on the very left, it's a voodoo doll, I don't know, with like only one pin or no pins. And they say, how many pins would you want to stick in yourself? This is their measure of self-harm. Uh... That's their measure of self-harm. I, I want to just, for the record, that's study four, I think. Yeah, not so study, study four. Three. No, no, I wanted to get straight to the... I love that they just made predictions about, like, the number of pins <laughs> that a person would stick in them and uh, their prediction... In their voodoo doll, not even in their, in, in their voodoo doll that represented themselves. See, this is the thing about this paper. There's this. Th there are these things designed for other people, like concepts like dehumanization yeah. or voodoo dolls. <laughs> like, voodoo dolls aren't designed for yourself. Like that's right. Not, you can just stab pins into yourself. Right. You don't have to stab pins into a voodoo that's right. doll. That's right. In, like, fact, <laughs> in fact, I, I always thought it was sort of a clever way of like coming up with a measure. Like if, you know, this is a voodoo doll of Tamler, like what do you want to do? Right. Like, you know, like at least I can pr like pretend. But yeah, I could just take a pin and stick it in myself. Uh, so, but I guess that's supposed to be like, that's the thing. Like you're like, I would think it shows that you don't want to harm yourself because you're sticking a voodoo, you're sticking a doll that somebody said is you rather than yourself, which you could do at any time. And by the way, you're not even sticking a doll. You're reporting how many needles in a, <laughs> oh in a fake, in a fake doll, in a picture of a doll. Okay. Look, I once did a study that has a ton of flaws. You know, I, 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 I don't even believe it would replicate probably. But it might. But at the very least, we got a shock machine and we had people actually shock themselves at higher right. levels. Like that's that's self-harm. Yeah. I mean, you could even argue maybe it is not, but it's like way closer to self-harm than, than predicting how many pins you, you might would, want to you would want to stick in a voodoo doll that was supposed to represent you. I would say this study like needs to be run where people actually have the doll and they, and they have 51 pins in front of them. further research. Yeah, future but I guess future research direction. <laughs> you couldn't do it on mechanical Turk, right? <laughs> I guess um, that's where you need like you need a grant. OK, this. by the way, just just because I think it's really important, really important to note that they had in this study revenge condition or forgiveness condition again. And the measure of self-harm, which is one 
pin, oh, sorry, zero pins in your self voodoo doll to 51 pins in the self voodoo doll. In the revenge condition, the number was, the average was 7.7 pins. Yeah. In the forgiveness condition, it was 6.84 pins. The standard deviations are, <laughs> standard, deviation, standard deviations are huge. And so they did, I'm not, I'm not good at stats. Like this might be kosher to do. They did, uh, they did a particular kind of analysis to, to try to take into account that the range was so restricted and they say that this is a significant difference, but you're still at the end of the day left with the fact that your doll pin like thing is, is literally 7.7 pins versus 6.8 pins. Right. That's nothing. That's not a thing. <laughs> this is our top journal in social psychology. Yeah, that's what's amazing. This is your top journal in top social journal. psychology. This is so insane. There's a, a few other things, like maybe some of your concerns about dehumanization being <laughs> poorly conceptualized yeah. or something like that, but they actually have uh, two circles that they <laughs> ask people to, to draw. Uh, one of them says self, and the other says other humans, and they have seven of these. So it's still like still, still, <laughs> still a like scale. scale. Yeah. And, uh, and number one, self and other humans are not like there's right. no overlap. There's no overlap. A, yeah. And then seven, self and other humans have significant overlap. That's By the way, next to this, there's a picture of a voodoo doll with 51 pins stabbed in, into it, which I, I'm not sure why they included because like there no voodoo dolls were harmed in this experiment. Because I think that they use the picture as like the scale anchor. When you're filling out that form, they show you the 51 pin voodoo doll and the zero pin voodoo doll so that you can see which yeah, like I now see. you slide. How close are you to the 51 pin? I right now feel like that 51 pin voodoo doll. See the online article for the color version of this figure, it says. Yes. So in case you're, you're looking at the, the print journal right you have now. The, J, like the, the JPSB on your coffee table you might not have the color. Yeah. Can we get to the bigger, like now that we've, not, like to the bigger question here, which is, is this saying anything like that wasn't known about the difference between forgiveness and revenge? Like, you know, think, yeah. it was tweeted to us as like, you guys are pro revenge. Now, what do you think about this? But like, yeah, I think forgiveness is great for people. Yeah. You know, if you get a chance to actually reconcile with somebody who hurt you, that's great. You know, I, I think our only point has ever been that um, revenge doesn't need to be done for its hedonic benefits. Sometimes you just actually want to make sort of like a justice occur when there's no justice to be had. And yeah. that, that might mean hurting somebody. And yeah. just because you feel like shit afterwards. Doesn't no, mean... you don't. You feel more humanized. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've been vindicated. <laughs> yeah, just not as much. But I'm like, human. <laughs> All I want to do is feel a little less like a machine. Like, right. I just want to put like a little fewer vo voodoo pins or imagine putting a little I'm fewer voodoo not... pins in dolls of myself. When I am proud of myself for being rational and logical, now I'm just confused. Am I... Less human or more human? <laughs> tell me. Just somebody tell me. Get, get the scale. We have to, <laughs> we'll have to run uh, an experiment with you. As a more serious thing to wrap up, there's just like a hundred different problems with this. Like, do you feel, because, you know, this is sometimes how I feel when I look at like the knowledge debate. That's the, the my go-to example for philosophy. Like, this is really what we're doing right now. Is that how you feel? Like, like this is your top journal. This like being serious as a social psychologist. Like, how do you feel when you read this? Yeah, I feel, I do feel a little dejected because I, I, I think that this paper does 
suffer from some problems that we should be fixing. Like it's layer, it's layered, it's it's building a foundation on sand in in a way that like I really am surprised that that it got in in its current form. Foundations have been laid though. Like a lot of their scales, they say have been validated. And yeah. I'm sure if we looked at like no, I how have. Well I have looked at this, you know, I have a, a student, Bronwyn, shout out, who has looked at, in depth at all of these scales of dehumanization. And I don't, I personally don't think there's any there there, but some of them are worse than others. And the ones that we read, I'm like, I, I just think it's a joke. My only regret is that this did not get published in time <laughs> for the social psychologists to include this in their letter to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> uh, because, you know, like, I think this might have tipped the scale, you know. Well, now he's just going to view himself as an animal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or a robot. Like, it could be either. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by the I Am Bio podcast. Where do biotechnology, politics, patients, and our planet all intersect? Find out by listening to the I Am Bio podcast. I Am Bio brings you powerful stories of biotechnology breakthroughs, the people they help, and the global problems they solve. This spring, IamBio dives into today's important issues. What are the biggest threats to our planet's water supply? That's a big one. That is a big uh, one. For someone like me who drinks w so much water. <laughs> That's right. Tamler is the biggest threat to this nation's <laughs> I, I water supply. I, so. <laughs> I, I, I hope they didn't discover that on that episode. What are the latest Alzheimer's research findings? And, Tamler, what are the latest Alzheimer's research findings? <laughs> <laughs> And how is biotech addressing the addiction crisis? The podcast is hosted by Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, who is the president and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, and she has spent her career helping patients benefit from cutting-edge innovation. If you want an answer to the world's water crisis, or at least a better formulation of the question, one of the, the most recent episodes of this podcast is all about water stress. Can we avert a looming crisis? Where they talk about water contamination, water overuse, and uh, plastic. Maybe you can get answers on how biotechnology is changing our world by listening to the I Am Bio podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our thanks to I Am Bio for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Listen, must we forget I originated all that wow shit, that row, wow shit, that jump up and ready to fuck shit up now, that jump up and ready to fuck shit up now, that jump up and ready to fuck shit up now, jump up, jump up and ready to fuck shit up now, shit, jump up and ready to fuck shit up now, that Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the predictable time in the show where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for all their support, um, all the ways in which you communicate with us, engage with us, engage with each other. We very much appreciate it. And that moral support keeps us going. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so. Verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read every one of your emails, though we can't answer to all of them, but we appreciate it. You can tweet to us at VeryBadWizards or at Tamler and at Peas. You can join our lively community on Reddit. Please or, or make it more lively. lively community. Once lively. Make it very lively again. <laughs> Go to. <laughs> make our subreddit lively again. <laughs> Bring it back. Um, 
at uh, reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, where I think it's usually quite entertaining, the posts that you, the Tamler, are in it, charge uh, of. Uh, it, they have an aesthetic to them. Exactly. The aesthetic of me, like, scrambling to find something on Google <laughs> Images. <laughs> you can please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We very much appreciate your positive reviews and your ratings help other people uh, find it and listen subscribe on spotify um no we really appreciate all the different ways you get in touch with us contact us i'm still getting people uh inviting me to play chess now from my oh, chess.com cool. uh, and i'm in some tough games with listeners right now um yeah the whole communal aspect of it is really maybe our favorite part of doing the, the podcast so yeah. uh, we really appreciate that and if, if you want to support us in more tangible ways um we appreciate that so much you can give us a one-time or recurring donation on paypal you can get some swag um, all of this can be found on our support page on verybadwizards.com and you can become one of our beloved patreon supporters we are we just did a bonus episode on millennium actress long promised and i thought i really enjoyed that discussion i thought we had a very nice discussion on that yeah even if you don't like millennium if you don't like anime or whatever like listen to that yeah you'll you'll hear us having a good time and you can so that's uh that was bonus episodes you also get a little delayed release of our monthly ask us anything um episodes that we do for the top tier members and uh at f- you get with just one dollar and up ad-, ad free episodes and dave's volumes of beats speaking of long promised uh yeah h- how close are you to releasing what is it volume uh, yeah i'm being five? a perfectionist about it you're being yeah. what i'm being a perfectionist about it yeah um, so I got No, volume six. It would be volume six, though. Yeah, volume six. Yeah. Um, so you get five volumes of his beats, and then uh, soon, at some point soon, uh, a perfect volume six <laughs> of beats. <laughs> and uh, at $5 and up, you get access to our Brothers Karamazov miniseries, as well as getting to vote on the topic that uh, the listener selected episode, which we do. Once uh, twice a year, and finally at uh, oh, you also get Dave's intro psych lectures. You get a couple lectures that I did on Plato's Symposium, and then finally at the ten dollar and up tier level, you get our monthly Ask Us Anything videos and audio. If you prefer to listen on audio and don't want to look at our faces, we have done. We're about to to record this coming weekend our eighth. Uh, ask us anything and we have some good questions already we look forward to doing that every month and um, yeah we're so grateful to everybody who donates at whatever tier you donate it is it it warms our hearts and keeps us going so thank you so much for all your support okay let's get to the uh, paper that I think you really want to read instead of the panpsychism philosophy of mind paper timeler and this is a uh, paper called The Common Consent Argument for the Existence of Nature Spirits by 
Titty Smith. Did did we get this from a listener? We got this uh, from a listener, definitely. Uh, maybe on Patreon. It was one of the finalists for our Patreon selected episode, and and uh, it looked great to me. Like it looks super interesting. Uh, so the argument that Smith is making here is he's he's reviving, he's bringing back an old argument for the existence of God, um, called the common consent argument, and that argument went something like. Look, if everybody in all of history pretty much has believed in God, then that should be taken as evidence or that it, it entails that God exists. Right. And, right. Which, which, yeah, I'm not sure who yeah, that uh, like defends a, the argument in that form. But, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It seems like one of those old-timey philosophy of religion arguments. Yeah. Um, and so Smith revives it. It tries to revive it in this paper by basically saying, no, look, like this is laughable as, as proof that God exists, but there might be something salvageable um, in this kind of argument. And the argument that he, is, is Titi a he? Do you know? Uh, yes, he is. Um, puts forth is that, well, the original argument that because everybody believes in God, God must exist, was flawed because... Uh, there are a ton of like cultures who did not believe in any like the creator they did not have a theistic right high god view and also of, that that um like a lot of the reasons that people believe in god is because it's been passed down from generation to generation it's not like every one of these groups independently just perceived the existence of god no they were like brought up in a religious tradition where belief was like just right. endemic to um, what it meant to grow up in these cultures. Right. Uh, an argument for theism can't really uh, succeed here because, as, as he says, proselytizing theistic traditions typically generate agreement by a process of cultural diffusion. So he says, look, most of the world now is either Christian or Muslim, but it's not because they all had some intuition that there must be like some single God. They're all just part of these Abrahamic religions that did a whole bunch of conversion through one way or another. So cultural, tr so the existence of agreement in the world, like the, the fact that billions of people believe in a high, quote unquote, high God, as they're called, um, can't really be used as evidence for the existence of, of God. But if we look at, at cultures where there was sort of no communication across those cultures and still see the presence of a common belief, then this might actually be evidence for the existence of whatever that belief is. And in this case, um, he says, a belief in animism, the, the view that there are spirits in animals, in nature, that is like in rivers, trees, mountains, rivers, tree, all like, of Miyazaki, the, yeah, <laughs> all the Miyazaki like the, stuff. <laughs> exactly. This is what people were telling us is like when we were disappointed with panpsychism, it was like, this is what you want to look at. Um, yeah. If that's what you want, if you want to enter a Miyazaki land. Right. So, so Smith says, thus, while it is true that anim uh, that animists are in the overwhelming minority, separate animistic communities have nevertheless come to agree about important religious propositions while in a state of extreme historical and geographical isolation from each other. And he says, this is a funny way of, of rhetorically presenting this, because somewhat surprisingly, my efforts lead me to the discovery that the best version of the argument supports the proposition, not that a God exists, but that some version of animism is probably, Tamler, probably true. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously it's not, it doesn't entail and you can't use right. that kind of language in what really is like an inference to the best explanation kind of argument, yeah. right? It's That's like, right. Yeah. Um, so. here's the phenomenon, um, which is just all these geographically isolated communities seem to believe in like a hundred percent, according to the study that he he cites, although yeah. it doesn't go really into the details of right. that, like a hundred percent of them believe in some form of animism. The best explanation for that might be that that's because animism is true. And, and, and the analogy that he uses, which is a problematic analogy based on like, you know, the argument that he goes on to make, he says, look, if a bunch of different people smell milk and independently agree that the milk has gone bad, and that's what they say, that the milk has gone bad, then it's the best explanation for that is probably, I mean, he doesn't use best explanation terminology, but that's what this is, I think. Um, yeah. the, that it's reasonable to conclude that the milk has gone bad. Obviously, it's not, imposs it's, it's not impossible that the milk is fine and that they all have some weird scent disorder but like that so that's the idea is you have these people who are independently not influenced by anyone else or each other just coming around to a belief that's prima facie reason to think that the that what they believe is true right and so he points to this this uh agreement this independent agreement as um epistemically sort of just very valuable and he says this isn't this the way we do science right so like if if people independently arrive at the same conclusion scientifically uh, people who've never talked to each other then we think that this this scientific claim has a greater chance of being true because it's not just that they're like influenced socially to believe the thing that they believe um, and i will say that while um, for reasons we'll talk about i don't find this argument compelling that is the form of argument that makes me, you know, agnostic, open about the existence of spirits and ghosts and all of that in general. It is that there are so many different people in different traditions across in so many different historical periods, including now, who have claimed to have these kinds of experiences and you know, you think the best explanation for that is, you know, some sort of debunking explanation about the brain or about, you know, ev from evolutionary psychology or, f or from cognitive science uh, in some form. And I think that given how unfleshed out that is, another leading candidate is because there are such things or things that approximate. Yeah, I... I do know that this is why you believe uh, or say say you're agnostic about what you believe. There are just a number of things that really bothered me about this paper. Um, so much so that I was going to ask you, why don't we make this one the opening segment? <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like like there is just so much hand waviness in the arguments that he he uh, uses to support this claim about animism that uh, it reminded me of the age change paper. We're like, he'll just say things. This paper is published in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy pretty recently, right? Uh, yeah, 2019, I think. T yeah, yeah, 2019. Wasn't so, that paper, the other paper published in Australasian? No. Like, Australasian is like a, it, you know, a top five, maybe top ten generalist journal in philosophy. Like, this is something that you're very psyched if you get a paper accepted to this journal. Is... is is this uh, 
you're saying this is a reason to think that this is a uh, higher quality paper. <laughs> no, like I like okay. I am saying that I'm surprised. Oh, okay. And like, you know, and especially since, you know, one of the things they're kind of known for is rigor, you know, yeah. like a kind of rigor. Yeah, where I, I think that you're right, that there's just so many things. For example, like what about, so do you want to describe the study since you looked into it? Yeah. That he cites just to support that all these different cultures believe in animism? Yeah, so so the idea is, okay, if it is the case that it would be compelling if independent cultures arrived at similar beliefs without any uh, exchange of ideas. Well, hunter-gatherer, still, there are still hunter-gatherer cultures that exist that have not had much contact. And so he points to a, a paper that we'll put a link to um, called uh, Hunter-Gatherers and the Origins of Religion, published in 2016 in Human Nature, that looks at the beliefs of 33 different hunter-gatherer societies, looks at their religious beliefs specifically, so this is a paper by anthropologists, to see what kinds of beliefs they have um, and just see how common they are. And in these 33 societies, if they they sort of come up with a categorization of different kinds of, of religious beliefs, including animism, belief in an afterlife, shamanism, ancestor worship, high gods, so this is uh, high gods being, you know, like uh, any god that's hierarchically, like has more control and more power than human beings. Active ancestor worship and active high gods, which I guess those two are beliefs that not just that an- your ancestors and that gods exist, but that they actually play a role in your, in like, you know, in human affairs. And it turns I out- I thought that- it was that they work out, you know, <laughs> they- <laughs> they go on the treadmill every so often. It's like a, no, no fat, <laughs> no fat ancestors. <laughs> um, uh, and so it turns out that animism is the most common belief in this sample. Uh, Thirty um, of thirty-three hunter-gatherer societies, where a hundred percent of those cultures have some form of belief that uh, there are spirits in nature. Um, yeah. So. The details on what it is they actually believe are very hazy in this paper. Yeah. Like this is one of the frustrating things. So he, so he quotes this. He says, In these animic systems, humans and not hum- non-humans are conceived as possessing the same type of interiority. The same type of interiority. And it is right. because of this common internal disposition that non-humans are said to possess social characteristics. They respect kinship rules. They obey ethical codes. And they, they engage in ritual activity. So, I mean, I guess that sounds kind of specific. But I just, I'd love to know the details of what it actually like. I'd like to get a, an account of what they were told, these anthropologists. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. In this paper, there is a bit of dismissal of the possibility that um, it's not truly agreement if, say, uh, Native Americans believe that there's a you know mountain here that has a spirit, and I don't know some other culture in Africa believes that only that trees have spirits. Say, um, yeah. he says, but that's okay. They're still animists. Um, when you look at the original uh, paper, yeah. it also is pretty lacks on the details so they just they have i think these are categories of belief that other people have come up with that must be fleshed out somewhere like what what is the nature of like what counts as theism what counts as animism what counts as as ancestor worship um but they like their main goal wasn't to descriptively present what these beliefs are but rather their goal 
was actually something that that I don't think Smith would like care for. Um, the The goal was to figure out like how these ideas spread. So the so the idea is that if you look at linguistic and genetic analyses of these these various hunter gatherer societies, you can get some sense of their common origins. And when you look at their beliefs and sort of overlap the structure of those beliefs with the structure of similarities in linguistics and in um, genetics, what you can see is a story by which like there's the original population of people who must have believed these things that then sort of branched out. So what happens is that like the argument, right. at least in this paper, is that animism is at the heart of almost all of the uh, rest of them because they think that animism is kind of like a necessary requirement to believe believing that spirits exist is necessary to believe that you know there's a big god in the sky um right so it's sort of like the common denominator of them all and they think that it's sort of like other beliefs can fall um out of those beliefs but some of them just happen more than others so belief in afterlife and shamanism is only there in 26 of the 33 all right, so so he reforms he reforms the common consent argument, adapts it to this. He says, near enough everyone, and near enough every isolated community, and near enough every historical era independently agrees that rocks, rivers, mountains, and trees have causally efficacious spirits. Whatever near enough everyone and nearly every and near enough every isolated community and near enough every historical area believes independently of the beliefs of outsiders is probably true. Therefore, it is probable, probable that some rocks, uh, uh, mountains, rivers, and trees have causally efficacious spirits. Now, here's where there's so many things that are just slippery here. <laughs> yeah. Number one, what, what's the evidence that in every historical era every isolated community. They looked at 33 communities in <laughs> our era, right? Yeah, yeah. In our historical era. Um, right. And I, I don't think he cited research about other historical eras, uh, you know, causally isolated communities there, right? Is that addressed? As far as I could tell, it's not addressed, right? No, it's not. And there's not even, you know, it is such a weird reliance on this one paper and this one finding because it's not even that these people think that that uh, the ones who did the original study think that they have an exhaustive account of even contemporary hunter-gatherer societies, mm -hmm. right? So just the ones that they looked at. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it may or not may or may not be true that uh, all contemporary hunter-gatherer societies have this, but it is unclear, and it is especially unclear that they would have all had it in the past. And yeah. it's also like unclear what exactly it is they believe, right? Because that is yeah. never. Right. Um, like, pinned down like this is why I think the sour milk analogy is so disanalogous is because in that case we're very clear what we're talking about right like, you're smelling milk is is it does it have that sour milk smell or not it's a very clear kind of yes no kind of deal but here it's like well what ex what exactly do they believe here causally right. eff efficacious he talks about sometimes he talks about they have an interiority like yeah. ours like and, and what does that even mean that they have an interiority like ours is like do rivers get like horny do they get you know it's like what <laughs> right. what right. like what are we talking about here 
Yeah. I, I think, and, and the, the thing is, I bet if you go into the details of what all these isolated communities that they studied believe in, I'm sure you would find a ton of very different beliefs concerning the spirits in all the different things that they say have spirits. Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, I think if you somehow managed to get, say, a representative from all 33 of these and like they all got together and they, they were able to speak each other's language, to what extent would they actually agree on any of the metaphysical claims um, that, they, that they each held? Like it's it's totally unclear, and that therefore it's unclear what what comes of this. So like yes, we have we've yeah. put these these beliefs in a category, a, a fairly broad category, and now somehow this is evidence that the broad category is true. And, and the reason this is important is because I think the plausibility of the argument depends on everyone believing the same thing, and especially maybe agreeing in perception, which he says earlier on, that they perceive the same thing, right? Like, that's why this argument is plausible. That's why, in the case of the, you know, Kepler and whoever that was trying to double-check a Galileo prediction, right? They did it independently, but they're both looking for the same exact thing. And so when they say, yes, I found it, I found it too, then that it's actually meaning something. But here it's like, like who the hell knows what they're exactly it is that they're saying. And not yeah. only that, it's not even clear that they're perceiving it at all. It's right. just that they believe it. That they're they not looking it. at rivers and feeling like the rivers are talking to them, or maybe they are, but nothing that is presented here indicates that. Right. Oh, you know, also, um, so, so there's a few things. I think we got it. We have probably get to the debunking explanation to, for the point that I'm about to make. But there's something about the also the theism point that bugs me, which is he hand waves that. Well, look, the agreement about whether or not a God exists or gods exist is is so culturally communicated that we can't make anything of it. But. There was, there's no attempt at all to try to uncover how many independently isolated religions have right. come to believe in gods. Right. And, and I think that the number is higher than he wants to say because he sort of falls on Abrahamic monotheism as the thing that represents theism. But there's so many different kinds of theistic beliefs, right? Multiple gods and, you know. But I think actually he says that as also an argument against the theistic version of the common consent argument. There isn't that much agreement. And and like when you're talking about the spiritual beliefs of, you know, Taoists or Buddhists, um, they don't believe in some sort of creator God. Yeah. So, um, they believe in something more. So it's like, but that totally applies to your own argument, your own yeah, version of uh, this as that's well. Right. That's right. Exactly. And I would have liked to have seen at least some attempt if there's going to be, you know, this is really resting a lot on these empirical premises, which which are either true or not. I would have liked to have seen some sort of discussion uh, about how, you know, whether or not there are independent cultures who have come to believe in either theism or monotheism of some mm-hmm. sort. Yeah, uh, I agree. Like, especially since at times he, he seems to just want to show that his argument is more probable than the theistic version of this yeah. argument. Although at other times wants to say, no, 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 this is a good argument and we should believe probably right. In, <laughs> right. 
in river spirits. And By the way, spirits. Alvin Plantinga sounds kind of crazy. Right, we should read some. some we should Plantinga. definitely. I think that, that would might that might be fun. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, you want to go to the evolutionary debunking arguments because this is the kind of thing that Dave likes to do when he disenchants the world. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so talk about like uh, arguments of the best explanation. Y- you would think. Um, that this would be uh, a substantial uh, counter explanation for what's going on, but in in three paragraphs or whatever, he completely destroys the evolutionary debunking arguments. Um, So the argument could be that the reason for commonalities in these kinds of beliefs is simply that, um, you know, we share the same kinds of brains and these brains have mechanisms that, although adaptive, can misfire. And so what's happening is that for good evolutionary reasons, we have brains that see agency and see patterns in nature that we overextend these kind of agency and attribute it to things um, much like you would say, you know, like if you see, you know, an outlet, it kind of looks like a face or, you know, a car kind of looks like a face. That's because we have like hyperactive face detection uh, mechanisms in our brain that are leading us to oversee faces where they don't actually exist. And, and the idea is like you want to err on the side of thinking the thing is alive mm-hmm. or has agency because if you look at a snake and you think, oh, that's probably just a exactly, stick, yeah, uh, right. and, and then it'll bite you. And so the people who, who didn't overcorrect for um, agency all died out. And That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it's a, it's, it's not, it's not a terrible error to think that something is alive when it's not. It is a potentially fatal error to think that it's not alive when it actually is. And so, speaking of hand wavy, by the way, but like. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but it's uh, like I, I, it feels less hand wavy um, than the others. No, but no, they so, seem like they could, like, like a, <laughs> in an, in a different mood. I would think that this is more because it's also just completely like not testable it's just pure speculation but it is well yeah it's the uh, it's the application of testable findings to to, yes but it is applying you you can't go back in time and see whether or not people who saw snakes were less likely to die it's true it's a just so story yeah there are there are just so stories and there are just so stories though you know it's like uh no that's right we we could talk about these kinds of arguments we've talked about them in the context of like morality and like when it's yes, applied to exactly, ethical right. intuitions and ethical beliefs yeah way back but, when we talked about evolutionary debunking arguments for morality i, I would be interested in doing it for for other stuff like this you yeah. know for epistemological um debate yeah yeah totally i'd be down this podcast is sponsored by better help online therapy dave which of these things do you do uh, teeth grinding? Uh, do you have digestive issues? Do you get headaches or do you doom scroll? Do you not sleep enough? Do you sleep too much? Do you undereat? Do you overeat? I think the only thing that I that is not me on this list is overeating. Just for some reason, stress never makes me overeat. But yeah. undereating, too much, too little sleep, doom scrolling, teeth grinding, headaches, digestive issues. <laughs> It's just too close to home. Yeah. (laughs) The one I don't do is sleep too much. That's never something I've been able to do. And I I wish I could sometimes. Um, But yeah, I'm pretty much all the other ones as well. And I, it doesn't surprise me that 
that is an indicator of stress. I feel like our world is getting more stressful by the day. Um, stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that is telling you to do more, just a culture, just a culture that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind, grind, hustle, hustle. Here's a reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy as a way to help you. Um, I certainly know a lot of people who therapy has completely turned their life around and in ways that they couldn't have expected um, before they did it. And BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. So if, if you're new to therapy and you just want to kind of see how it is without necessarily going through the whole rigmarole of going to see somebody or setting up another Zoom or Teams call, um, whatever is suitable for you, whatever feels comfortable for you, you can do for better help. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower some of your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks, as always, to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. So um, one of the things that he says here is that, look, if you have an unreliable cognitive faculty, if you believe that what's going on is that brains are misfiring, uh, it would be weird if they misfire. Like misfiring doesn't lead to agreement. It should lead people to believe all kinds of things, but not agreement, which I think is just a, a com completely weird um, claim to make because um, unreliable cognitive faculties are often systematically unreliable, right? So the reason we all see the visual illusions like the shepherd table, the reason that we all think that those two tables must be really, really different is because we all have the same unreliable faculties telling us that they look different. And so there's just systematic errors that the brain causes. And like there's like the entire fields of perception and judgment decision-making are all about how systematic errors arise because of these mechanisms. So not only that, but also, like, for all we know, they are. They are coming up with different <laughs> yeah. kinds of you know, that beliefs. Too. Yeah, yeah, Right? Like, <laughs> that too. It's not that every culture says, okay, rivers and mountains are alive, but, <laughs> yeah, like, but, yeah, but and, and evergreen trees are not alive, but, like, you know. And if um, you believe it, you, you, well, we're going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> Don't fuck. those tree worshipers, those pagan tree worshipers. But that's not how it is, right? So it seems like if this hypothesis that yeah. we overcorrect in seeing agency like that could be exactly what we're finding which is that people do see different kinds of things as alive with agency and having agency yeah if what he's arguing is contrary to what Tamler just said saying like there is agreement like if we even grant that there is agreement which we're not willing to grant then you know, what he tries to say is, well, you could believe that it's a cognitive error, but I don't think so. But you could also believe something else. So suppose that all hunter-gatherer religions for sure believed in something similar. 
Yeah. Like reading this paper and then reading what he cited led me down a kind of a cool rabbit hole of this anthropology of religion that tries to understand why certain beliefs emerge, why certain kinds of religion emerge. Mm. And one of the things that they say is that, in, that th you don't really see theistic religions emerge until you have, so like hierarchical gods, until you have non-egalitarian hierarchical societies. So like ag when, once agriculture becomes a thing and then there's this sort of division yeah, of yeah. labor and you have hierarchy, that's when you see them merge because hierarchical gods kind of don't make sense or aren't needed for hunter-gatherer, which are really egalitarian societies. And so it could be that there is something like, um, if my daily existence depends on, you know, the deer being there to hunt or the bison being there to hunt, all sorts of things like the river and the mountain, these are all right. really important to your sort of everyday survival. It's easy to see why you might be prone to believing that these there are spirits in those things. Whereas if you're, you know, living in a little town in an agricultural society, your day-to-day -day depends on something entirely different. And so your beliefs might emerge as as different. Right. That's interesting. I know some of this work too is the God of the Bible or the Greek gods are yeah. really just almost metaphors for the kings right. and the rulers of the various societies in which these religions emerge. You know, again, right. like a just so story to an extent, but there is a kind of coincidence where you don't see those kinds of gods until you see hierarchical structures within the society. And then all of a sudden you have this kind of hierarchical uh, theology. So, yeah. yeah. It, and I think that that I wouldn't call them just a story. I wouldn't put them in the same category because they're at least yeah. at the very least you can look at the patterns and you could falsify it. Like you could say if the claim is that. Um, only hierarchical societies um, have theistic religions. Presumably, you could see, you yeah, know, in, in the historical record, you might. And, and yeah, you might if you didn't already know. Like the problem with some of the evolutionary psychology stuff is we already know like what we're prone to and what yeah. we're not prone to, and so like it's hard to make predictions. But we could easily still uncover records, you know, through archaeological research or something of like a society that seemed like they had a hierarchical gods, but it was an egalitarian society, yeah, hunter-gatherer-like right. society or something. Although, did, did this one have, in this study, did they find any hierarchical? No, because they were, all of these hunter-gatherer societies are really egalitarian. Like there's no... But they there's saw, no... they had like 39% of them believed in high gods and active yeah, high gods. Yeah, that's true, yeah, yeah. Um, in active high gods. But it is kind of fascinating because even if you have no hypothesis whatsoever to just go and categorize religious beliefs and then look at the conditions in, under which they emerge seems really like kind of cool. Definitely. And yeah. like I think you should be open to some sort of supernatural explanation. But even if you're not or even if, you know, you think extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence – Whatever the explanation that you come up with, it's just going to be interesting because there's going to be yeah. cool patterns and connections that you can make between the religions and the societal structure and the instit whatever institutions they have. Yeah. Um, one of the things that did sort of uh, also bother me was when he's talking about um, the difference between theism and animism. And he says, like, it's more plausible to believe in animism than in theism because theism believes in disembodied minds. 
Right. So if you're talking about the kinds of things that might have minds, it seems as if a disembodied spirit is less plausible than a river or a tree. And I just found this kind of a weird way to argue because I actually think that that even non-scientific societies, like I feel like having a brain is just what we know causes minds. I don't know. A river but, spirit and a, and a disembodied god seem to me to be on similar ground. On right? like, yeah, like brains are what we know cause minds. And so like mam- that a rabbit has a mind seems like a pretty reasonable well, thing now, to believe. So wait, here's the thing that I would disagree with. I, I take your general point, but like we don't know that brains cause minds because we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand how the brain causes consciousness. We think, obviously we think that there's causal links there because you fuck with the brain and then the consciousness seems to go away as far as we know. But like, we don't understand how that works. So, but I would extend that then to the disembodied spirits too. Yeah. Well, let me clarify. I mean, so I think we definitely know that brains cause minds. Uh, we don't need to know how they cause minds to know that they do. So, like when you fuck with someone's well, I don't brain, think we know that. Well, when you fuck with someone's brain, their mind goes away. Like I don't know of any better evidence. Like when you fuck with someone's brain with acid, their consciousness changes. Like we don't need to solve the problem of how brains cause consciousness to know that they do, right? But it's also true that we don't know if brains are necessary to cause minds. Right. Like that is for sure not true. Like it yeah. could be that, that some other thing can cause a mind. Yeah, um, good. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And so so I guess you could have a theory why it's more plausible that rivers uh, have the mechanism that gives rise to mind than, than it is to just believe like a bearded spirit in the sky. But I don't think... Yeah, you know, like would a pan-psychic say that? Because they would say, look, yeah, a river is at least composed of all the same conscious atoms that we're composed with and so it's more likely that something that's composed with these atoms has a mind than something that's not composed of anything yeah i guess if it does go you're reminding me about how panpsychism might turn into something boring because it's like well everything that has atoms has minds but not but and this is where i got a little bit confused because isn't the claim that like the river has a spirit akin metaphysically to saying that like there is a spirit in the sky like do the do the and this is where the details matter as you were saying so this is i also looked at a paper but we looked at very very different kinds (laughs) of papers which i think corresponds to what people might think we would we would turn to but towards the end of this paper the titty smith paper he he refers to tim ingold and and quotes him as saying that animism is a condition of being alive to the world characterized by a heightened sensitivity and responsiveness in perception and action to an environment that is always in flux, never the same from one, um, one moment to the next. So I went and looked at this paper. Here's a, a quote, right? He says, according to a long-established convention, animism is a system of beliefs that imputes life or spirit to things that are truly inert. But this convention, as I shall show, is misleading on two counts. First, we are dealing here not with a way of believing about the world, but with the condition of being in it. This could be described as a condition of being alive to the world, characterized by a heightened sensitivity and responsiveness in perception and action to an environment that is always in flux, never the same from one moment to the, to the next. Animacy, then, is not a property of persons imaginatively projected onto the things with which they perceive themselves to be surrounded. 
Rather, and this is my second point, it is the dynamic transformative potential of the entire field of relations within which beings of all kinds, more or less person-like or thing-like, continually and reciprocally bring one another into existence. The animacy of the life world, in short, is not the result of an infusion of spirit into substance or of agency into materiality, but is rather ontologically prior to their differentiation. Does that clear things up for you? I, I was going to say, could you say it in your own words? <laughs> I think the idea is, and this is, it relates in its, but I think in a more exciting way, another way of describing the panpsychic view, that this kind of spirit is at the bottom of everything, right? Like, the, yeah. We tend to think about it like you just said, like, is it that the river just has a spirit in it or something that's like that? It's like, no, it's like spirit and animacy is like the ground level of being. This, is, yeah. this also has like a lot of parallels, I think, with a uh, Buddhist way of understanding reality. Animacy or animateness, like he calls it animacy, is just like the f- kind, of, kind of the fundamental features of reality one of the fundamental features of reality and how that manifests itself is going to be different depending on what kind of thing we're talking about but they're all independent i'm sorry interdependent like when i think when he says reciprocally bringing themselves into existence continually it yeah that makes sense i mean i think that, that <laughs> really that, i'm glad I, well no, <laughs> yeah. no i mean it's still it's still to me is a highly implausible view to hold but what does make sense is that i saw how easily i was uh, imputing my notion of spirit like mm-hmm. a dualistic notion of spirit um and and it does sound like that description that it just is like the force just is spirit actually yeah is sounds a lot closer to everything like all of those religious or you know whatever proto-religious views are that that it's not as if there is this external thing that is inhabiting the tree right it just is the tree yeah Um, and so like he says uh this is an anthropologist this ingold guy and he said he was studying the uh, native hunters of northern canada the weminji cree life is is continuous birth uh, life is the animic ontology. It's not an emanation, but a generation of being. Like, I could get really into this stuff. <laughs> but a generation of being in a world that is not preordained, but incipient, forever on the verge of the actual. One is continually present as witness to that moment, always moving like the crest of a wave at which the world is about to disclose itself for what it is. And then he talks about Merleau-Ponty, This is a cool paper. I mean, it's a little wacky, but it's a cool paper because it it is doing what I fully support, which is just kind of trying to get people to be open to uh, a more enchanted kind of world than they've been like drilled into thinking is the world we live in. I um, we our minds have moved in such different trajectories over time that I I feel like what you just read to me is bordering on Jordan Peterson. Like, I, and, and I have this deep fear that you actually, like, if you, if you ever bothered to listen to Jordan Peterson lectures, like you might come out really liking them. And, and I think that well, like he's a is, youngian, right? Like I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I like yeah. some of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to me, there is no, uh, there is nothing that's been drilled into me 
about believing in a non-enchanted world. In fact, it's the, the opposite, right? So I'm coming from such a different place as you. What was drilled into me was believing in the supernatural. And yeah. to me, like the realization has been that there is no good reason to believe in any of these things, right? Like that, that the belief in the personal, um, you know, Judeo-Christian deity that I, that I was told existed falls, falls apart upon scrutiny in, for the same reasons that like tree spirits would, right? That there's just, there's just nothing there. And, and, uh, you know, if we're like, suppose that we're both contrarian and like we started at a different place we're just we're, we're rebelling still, against different ways of thinking <laughs> but i do think there is also a philosophical disagreement that we have i'm sure there's like mm-hmm. sociological mm-hmm. Te- like no, temperamental no, yeah, I, I, I think so too. Yeah. you have more faith in science as a tool that can explain um reality uh, yes. than i do if you are a little more skeptical that uh, about what science can accomplish and, and what it can't then you're going to be more open to other ways of understanding the world. Yeah, although I truly don't get why. So, so you you refer to it as faith in science, and like I didn't I know, say faith. I just said yeah. You, you said you believe. have more faith in science. No, I didn't mean <laughs> like that. Okay, yeah. okay, but it's not that I believe science has all the answers. There's so much, and we both agree on this. There's so yeah. much that science, you know, our brains are limited, let alone our understanding of you know of. Right of like fundamental reality like it seems it's it seems difficult to ever get there but there is a uh, a need to constrain our like our wild imagination in a way that sort of science brings discipline to saying like what could plausibly be true and what couldn't plausibly be true and so one of the things that about this paper specifically that relates to this is that it it doesn't get off the ground for me because Agreement can never be the sole, like the sole uh, epistemic um, yeah. criteria, because when I say that I don't believe in spirits, it's it's also because if I believed in spirits, it would have to alter a whole lot of other things that I believe to be true, and and there it all sort of hinges together on this sort of worldview that if things are causally efficacious, we should be able to in some way record their you know their causing things like yeah. that. Because, or else I find it really hard. You know, you get you get annoyed with me probably appropriately for saying like, why not believe in in uh, leprechauns? But it in some way, what I'm trying to communicate is like, I could I could go wild and believe all kinds of shit, and and there has to be something holding me back from believing like all of those things might be true. Right, and I agree. Like, but it doesn't have to be that somebody has recorded it, or you know, there are other things that can hold you back besides just like peer review journal, mechanical <laughs> Turk survey, you know, Australasian reviewer, <laughs> Australasian <laughs> reviewer. but no, I, here's where I a hundred percent agree with you. This is why I'm surprised that it's in the Australasian journal. I, I think part of the problem is he doesn't really identify it as an inference to the best explanation argument, which is clearly what yeah. it is. That's yeah, what yeah. the plausibility of that argument uh, kind of relies on implicitly. So number one, and we've talked about it, we're not exactly sure what we're trying to explain here because it's like we don't know yet the thing to be explained, what those beliefs uh, are in more detail. But number two, when he's saying that animism is true is the best explanation for all these reports from these isolated societies, 
what you have to consider is, well, what kinds of laws of physics would this violate if, yeah. if animism was true? Like, how does that fit in? Because that's part of evaluating whether it's the best explanation yeah, right. or not, <laughs> right. is how does it fit with, like, the rest of yeah. how we understand reality? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. That's yeah. just enough to say, well, this is definitely not probably true because then we would have to completely uh, revise our understanding of how re reality works according to physics and according to like our best understanding of the laws of nature. And the fact that that's not even like, I think there's a way you can try to reply to this in a different form of argument, but you have to address that. You can't just ignore the fact that you know, yeah. like the, uh, in a in inference to the best explanation argument that your explanation requires that like the laws of nature are not what we thought they were. Yeah, there's a balance of beliefs that we have about all sorts of things, including the physical world that some that affect each other. And, you know, I was thinking about this sort of the reliance on the, the claim about agreement us outside of the world of science. Um, it, it feels to me as if like there are so many reasons to be suspicious that agreement gen is a is a truth tracking, you know, like agreement over time, because surely like there are things that like uh, like the inequality of men and women are something that we would say we were just wrong about. But like hands down, every society must have believed that that was true more than animism. <laughs> well, maybe we should uh, take that. <laughs> You know, <laughs> there it is. The authority. Before we dive into your <laughs> intersectional paradise, you know, maybe we should uh, take that seriously. <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by Super Speciosa Kratom. Uh, Tamler, this weekend I was in Toronto and mm -hmm. I was just walking through the old stomping grounds that I had when I lived there actually when we started recording this podcast and I walked like I think 10 miles the next day I needed a crate of very bad <laughs> very badly after, um, after walking uh, 10 miles walking 10 miles I was wearing my Air Jordans they weren't quite the walking shoes that I thought they were <laughs> I was just trying to look fly and so I as many people do Took some Kratom to give me a little bit of a boost, a little bounce in my step for the next day when I had to walk again. Um, and I find that Kratom does what it says it does, which is it acts as a painkiller, but it also puts you in potentially a good mood. Um, yeah, a more relaxed mood. That's what I use it for. Yeah. Less as a painkiller, more I come home after a long day of teaching or, you know, a day of teaching. <laughs> That's right. It chills you out. Or it chills me out anyway. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I like the tea. I like the capsules. I like, um, have, uh, you know, powder I haven't fully figured out yet. I don't know if you have. <laughs> Maybe in a smoothie? I can't imagine that it's in a smoothie. Wash and rinse, you know. <laughs> I tried to put it with orange juice once, but... I don't know about that. So, yeah, if you have, if listeners have any suggestions on powder, uh, that right? Would be I don't great. think you're supposed to snort it. Um, <laughs> no, 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 probably not. <laughs> Although that's a good idea. I might try that. Um, I use it for editing the episode, by the way. <laughs> uh, that's one thing I absolutely use it for. So, if you are struggling to edit your own episodes or if you would like to chill after work or if you would like to recover 
after a long walk the previous day. Uh, Super Speciosa offers 100% satisfaction or your money back guaranteed. So you can try Kratom now with them get t- and get 20% off. Go to getsuperleaf.com slash VBW and get 20% off with the promo code VBW. That's getsuperleaf.com slash VBW and use promo code VBW for 20% off. Thanks to Super Speciosa for sponsoring this episode. I had another sort of uh, a bone to pick. Um, uh, the author says here uh, when he's talking about the um, widespread beliefs of animism, um, and so so he's he's talking about the original paper that he's citing, and he says, well, they believe they actually believe that this has been transmitted, right? Which they do. They believe that there was some like original a long society. time ago. Yeah. yeah. However, I do not believe that such a finding, if indeed correct, is fatal to the claim that this agreement gives prima facie support to the claim that animism is true. The very fact that animistic beliefs have been retained across so many millennia is nearly miraculous. But suppose that we have the kinds of brains that track truth and um, and that's why people believe in animism. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a bit more robust? Like, why don't wouldn't why do we, we all? Yeah, yeah. Wh- wouldn't we be really tempted to believe in animism in the same that's way? What, that, that's the yeah. other thing that's not that's just ignored is why does most of the world? I know we are not isolated communities, <laughs> yeah. But why does most of the world not believe in? in yeah, this, or at least how a could lot it drop of off world? so easily? Like, how could it? Why have I never thought like the river is alive? Yeah, right. It, it's hard to feel that it's just part of, like, part of our perception. And, you know, who knows? I'm sure culture plays a really strong role, but like it does seem like it would be a little more robust. Like it's barely hanging on in these 33 like hunter-gatherer societies. And that's why we like we really need to know the nature of these beliefs, like how they come about them. Like, do they talk to the trees? Do they feel like the trees talk to them? Like if everybody thought that trees talked in all these isolated communities and, and it was something specific enough like that, that they're actually communicating with them. Well, that would be something then I would want to take more seriously. Um, And it would be interesting. But there's still the question was, well, how come I don't, trees don't talk to me or anybody that I I know, you know? Right. So that would still be a question that you would have to address. I mean, there's so many problems with this argument that they don't nail down what it is exactly that they agree on and then also don't investigate why or how. So the argument for my position has to be a lot better than the, what the, you get here. Um, you know, it made it made me like actually ponder the idea of writing uh, an article like against this. <laughs> but this just seems like a waste of time. But um, so like, I, I will at least give Can give it credit in that sense. Like it made me think of all of the reasons <laughs> why I thought it was a bad argument. Here's one question I would have for you and your just general epistemological stance, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody said, look, our science cannot explain how neurons firing in a certain way leads to the phenomenon of consciousness, right? Like, we just don't... Now, I don't know if it goes against... It might even just go against what we believe the laws of nature to be, but it certainly is not something that has been explained how that works. You agree with that. You've, you've said and you've, you think that that, like, 
might remain a mystery for yeah. forever. Like we might not have the types of brains to yeah. figure it out, like how that works. Now, let's say somebody came along and says, well, right, so we shouldn't believe in conscious experiences because we don't have any plausible explanation for how that could come about. Right. It seems like that same structure of argument could lead you to, or tempt you to eliminativism about consciousness. But of course, there's one reason why. Yeah, right. That. Yeah, it, and that is that I have that I feel I have consciousness, right. and, and as, that, as I think that Sam Harris said on on an episode, like consciousness is the one thing you can't deny. Right, and it's not like I think the question. I think we don't even know how to formulate the question properly, but because it, it's not really that, um, say the scientific worldview is inconsistent with the, the fact that I have consciousness. It's more like it's this feeling of just like being very incomplete. But there is another uh, belief that might fit, fit the bill a bit more, like with at least the spirit in which you're asking the question. And that is belief in, in agentic freedom, which I kind of endorse. That really does seem inconsistent with the laws of physics in a way that I, I find harder to reconcile. Um, yeah, it might even be against the laws of yeah. like, logic. So, right. <laughs> right. right. No, but so I think this, so this fact, I think, has to be part of any argument for something more supernatural, which uh, would take the form of, well, we might be tempted to deny consciousness or agentic freedom except for the fact that we feel like we have it and it seems fundamental to our experience and if you're not going to believe that like it seems like you really that's like the basis of all yeah like even beliefs. if you believe firmly that we're in a simulation it seems like the whole the, yeah you can never deny that you, 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 you know and then given then all the vivid testimony and some of the vivid experiences like so say that you had had a couple of exp what you like consider like supernatural experiences or something like that or, or someone like me who hasn't really had something exactly like that maybe has had like transcendental kind of feelings or experiences but not not like taking the form of like a ghost or anything right. like that, uh, except the one that broke the glass in the <laughs> kitchen. You might say, look, it's true that this isn't something that is explained by, by science right now, but like neither is consciousness, neither is this kind of agentic uh, freedom that we feel ourselves to have. So this is why we have to be open to something that seems at odds with or at least completely unexplained by our current scientific understanding, you know, if there's just enough of uh, the, the, these experiences and enough testimony to these experiences, or if you have one of these experiences yourself, it's like, I think you would want to, for the same reasons that we might believe in these other things, uh, we we should be open to belief in in those things as well. And then, of course, the thing that would, like matter there is what are some competing explanations for those experiences the, other than that they really track something real and that's where you think we have a better explanation for all of those experiences i do i think so i think that um and and i do think that uh the belief in my agency uh, let's say let's say it this way belief in my consciousness is strong evidence just sort of by definition feels like undeniable Belief in my agency is also something I experience every day, but it is admittedly um, 
I think for me harder to reconcile. So like I, I have to remain doubtful as to whether or not I have the sort of agency that might make me morally responsible. Um, but you certainly but feel like you I certainly do, feel like and, it. Yeah. And so that would have that would be the thing that yeah. has to be explained. Right. One it, one explanation is that you have it. Right. And the other explanation is something it's, else. Exactly. Yeah. As so many have, have written, maybe, you know, yeah. this is just sort of like epiphenomenal or whatever. My belief that disembodied minds exist violates more, I think, of my uh the things I believe about what what kinds of things cause minds, and I've never had a supernatural experience, um, and so so the, it's not very difficult for me to to. It's not like I'm walking around thinking. About how do I explain? The, yeah, how do I explain yeah. the fact that like you know a voice was talking to me from from the void, um, and you know it's interesting because being raised super religious and, and being told that God and angels existed and they, you know, that intercessory prayer worked and that, you know, I had a guardian angel and that evil spirits, you know, like fallen angels were actually trying to make me fall into temptation. I remember telling my mother repeatedly as a young kid, like, why can't I see any of them? Like, why can't I have, why can't God talk to me? And at one point even saying, and this is from a seventh Adventist where the, the, devil is almost more metaphysically present than God in, in our theology saying like, why can't like a demon show themselves? I, like I would take that. Like, I, would, right. <laughs> I, like, I wouldn't mind. I would take like getting just fucked like <laughs> yeah, by a demon. Exactly. Like in the ways that like, like, <laughs> like illustrations a, of old, like witches, you know, like getting yeah. like a big demon cock just violating me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just had, you know, I haven't had anything like that. And um, do you know people who have like people that you otherwise like respect and like know to be like not my, yeah, my someone to make that up? My dad, um, who is an intelligent and man I respect completely, he's very religious. And he's he says that when he was a kid in Chile, they had uh, like the equivalent of a wake would be with the body in the living room of the family. And mm -hmm. I think like his uncle died or something. And, the, you know, the body was just in the living room and he was upstairs sleeping or down i don't remember in another room and he swears that he heard like ghosts you know moaning like all night uh, <laughs> and he was a he was a kid you know he, he i think he heard like the whatever the sort of tropey rat chains rattling um yeah. kind of thing and he's he swears that was a a supernatural experience i had an uncle who i respect greatly who is actually a, a extremely smart man who wrote m many many books even translated the Bible on his own from Span from uh, Hebrew and uh, Greek into Spanish, um, had tales of like that he thought that he had encountered actual evil spirits. And I've always found it so hard, so difficult to reconcile the experiences that I've both read about from people who seem normal, like and people I know. Like I don't know what is going on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I want you to admit. Uh, no, but I think that was the, precisely the thing that, you know, I'd never really looked into this and I had always been kind of just a instinctive naturalist. But I remember going out for drinks with like five fellow academics, you know, uh, people who worked. And like I was the only one there who hadn't had an experience of some kind. And I was like, that's holy crazy, shit. Yeah. And then that made me just more interested in taking this kind of stuff seriously. And whatever the truth is like it does cry out for explanation that all of these people very smart people a lot many of also who are aware of 
you know, whatever debunking explanation people want to offer for this kind of stuff and nevertheless maintain that they had a kind of genuine uh, supernatural experience. I wish I could. I'm like you. <laughs> like, I want to be raped by a demon or something, <laughs> just to know. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, I have contented myself with the sort of psychological explanations, um, in part, you know, the cognitive science kind of explanations that there are, you know, that we, we have an overactive sense of animacy and that there are sort of faulty perceptual mechanisms that can get explained, if you believe they can get explained in one direction. Um, and and I, I've been okay with that, but that's not to say that it hasn't fucked with me in the same way that you're saying. In fact, I was listening to something the other day and someone just casually mentioned that there was a ghost in the house that they were in, like as yeah. if it were nothing. And I'm like, that would rock my world. Like if I like believed that, that's insane. Um, yeah. It reminds me though, I may have told this story on the podcast before, but I love it. And I tell my class every time I talk about these cognitive mechanisms, um, it was a, a friend of mine in college had a philosophy professor who was an atheist. And my friend was less, more like you. He was like, eh, who knows, right? Yeah. Um, and so he asked the professor, have you ever like had a moment where you, you think like may, maybe there is something supernatural, maybe God does exist? And the guy says, well, you know, one time I was walking, like I used to go for these walks in the forest late at night. And one time I, I thought to myself, well, let me give this a shot, right? And so I said, God, if you exist, show me a shooting star right now. So then I looked up and there was a shooting star that ran across the sky. Wow. And he says, I looked down and I said, what a fucking coincidence. Which is <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard this story, I was a theist. So I was like, wow, man, that guy is just not, you know, he's not accepting the truth of the matter. And then later on in life, I'm like, that ha that happened, that has to happen at least a few times every year to somebody. Because shooting stars happen and people say, God, show me a sign. It's like just is gonna happen to somebody. But did he say show me a sign or show, yeah, me, a show shooting me a shooting star? star? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that happens that uh, often. It, it, well, yeah, it, but it must happen, right? It's I mean, like, it's true that like if you're out camping, you see a lot of shooting stars. Yeah, so I don't know right. where he was. But, yeah, he was um, an old. He was an old old man, so it's probably like existed in the time when you could still see lots of stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, this Tim Ingold paper is also about like different groups of people that, who have a kind of animistic ontology. But his, his agenda here, unlike this other paper, is to uh, the Western tradition of thought to recover the sense of astonishment banished from official science. <laughs> and it reminded me of this book that I came across recently that talked, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of sociology history of science but the, the main thesis is that, peop, that science has to do this. They have to just shut the door on supernatural explanation. They have to shut the door on anything that's not empirically testable or, or there is empirical evidence for. Not because necessarily that's the most rational thing to do in every case, but because science needs that. Like the, the scientists and, and the method itself can't allow for b believing those kinds of things. And one of the things that he says this explains is, the, you know, the kind of things that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or Richard Dawkins will say when they just shit on philosophy or shit on, like, all these, all these other forms of 
understanding or, or um, appreciating the world. He's like, this is just part of like the bedrock of science. And he almost, even though I think he's very sympathetic to science and he thinks it's not a bad thing that they do that, but there's a kind of postmodern take in the sense that it's saying that it's the very structure of what it means to be a scientist that you have to have this attitude. And it has to be dogmatic. I think he even uses the word dogmatic because that's the way that's, uh, that's the only way for science to function is to have that attitude. Um, I don't know if I'm doing it justice, but I think... That, that's consonant with what this uh, Ingold guy wants to reverse. Think, he wants you not to have it. <laughs> I think that there, is, there are a few things that are going on that I agree with um, there in, the, in that set of things that you just said. And um, one of them is that for some reason, what it means to be scientific is often associated with this rejection of like, the kinds of real human experiences like awe and and like oneness with nature or something like it, it's gotten wrapped up whether it's because of like a, a certain kind of a cult of personality about you know like certain kinds of people like those uber rationalists like Dawkins yeah. um, when I think that so much of what scientists like what drives them is this sense of awe and wonder at like the unknowns in the universe and and, you know, when I read even those articles that that um, you put in our Slack about quantum phenomenon being like oh, so yeah. fucking weird. Right. There are scientists who I think have like a deep appreciation of the, these mysteries in in the universe that we're trying to crack that I, I sort of I wish that science weren't wrapped up into the fuddy duddiness of like, you know, Richard Dawkins yeah. telling you you're wrong about spirits or something. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, I hate the implication that there is some sort of dogmatism that's causing me to not want to open my mind when in fact, like I feel like it's been such a different trajectory for me where I have come to understand that some things shouldn't be believed and that's it. Like, whereas before right. I lived in a world where all kinds of crazy things could be believed and, and I feel like it, it, it's, I don't know. No, no sure. I get it. Like yeah. the dogmatism charge would be frustrating for somebody in your, right. <laughs> in your yes, circumstance right. because yeah. you were, you, you emerged from a dogmatic yeah. worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I, yeah, I totally get that. And I think when he says dogmatism, he doesn't even mean it as, I'm trying to find what this book is. He doesn't even mean it as like an insult or as some sort of epistemological objection as much as it that just has to be built into the the yeah. method the, the the scientific attitude as a scientist not necessarily you as a overall person yeah. but you as a scientist for science to function that has to be like the official attitude i think that that uh, i remember now i was going to say this other thing which is what i kind of uh agree with the spirit which is um that for some reason the prototypical science that has come to sort of dominate what it means to be science is like some version of physics that's not even true, where yeah. um, like like actual physicists wouldn't even endorse this kind of like super mechanistic reductionist kind of thing. And I was I, I was talking to Sean Nichols not too long ago about reductionism and about how it yeah. seems seems sort of silly to think that like I don't know s suppose that I wanted to make a sociological claim that religions in the u.s th thrived because of uh there was a free market for religion where in in 
in places where there was a uh, state religion, you just had less engagement with religion because there was no com- competition for your soul, so to speak. And that's something, yeah. you know, something people point out. Suppose that I want to make that claim. It seems really weird to think that the only way that I could explain that would be by studying brain cells um, right. or by studying how atoms interact with each other. Like right. it's, it seems like a real misguided approach to think that everything could be like physics where, where we reduce things and we, cause yeah. like that culturally that came to be what we mean by science. And I think even as like a, a behavioral scientist, like I think it's led us astray. Mm-hmm. We feel almost guilty for positing something that couldn't be explainable by a reduced, you know, by the reductive mechanisms. That would be another, I mean, that would be a tough one for us to do, but I would like to do an episode on reductionism. Yeah, I would but you're right that, that it yeah. is the default kind of view. And it's almost like if, you know, if you don't think it works in a, in the reductionist way, like the burden is on you. Yeah. Even if they have right. not successfully in right. any way reduced uh, the phenomenon in question, it's like, but it can be, is the default position. Yeah. I don't know how many psychologists have kind of smirked at me for even daring to think that like the brain studies won't give us like the necessary information you know it's just like yeah and there there i agree with the sort of cultural criticism because science is a culture too like there like i like to separate the empirical process from the culture but it can't be denied that there is a culture of science that is super reductionistic and and sometimes as i think you're trying to point out not good for the human spirit (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not good for the human spirit. It also doesn't certainly follow from any, like, it's it's really just an epistemological commitment, almost a dogmatic commitment in some forms, um, and in the, like, the bad sense of dogmatic. So this book just uh, that I've mentioned, it's called The Knowledge Machine, How Irrationality Created Modern Science which sounds, I think, so. more kind of provocative than yeah. it is. Um, <laughs> that's the publisher title. <laughs> yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. But, but anyway, that's the title of the book for anyone who wants to go and say, well, actually, that's not what he's arguing at all. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, uh, so we got, I think we both, we both bent a little bit. Yeah, and I'm actually, I was a little worried that uh, that, and I don't mean this as an insult, but that because you want, you wanted want the spirits believe. and rocket rocks have <laughs> like the the forest spirits that you would yeah. that you would be less critical of the bad arguments, but you weren't. <laughs> no, I don't think this was a good argument, uh, <laughs> a good set of arguments. I was pretty disappointed because uh, I was looking forward to um, yeah finding something that. I don't know, like maybe one day I will try to write out my general epistemological commitments here and my reasons for having them. Yeah. Um, um, but they're one, not this. <laughs> they're definitely right. not this. One day you and I will write something together uh, and our audience would be happy to read it, I'm sure. Yeah, get your co- pre-order your copies now. Pre- pre-order whatever it is that we're going <laughs> to <laughs> We're right. going to make it. Well, an, I'm going to do an NFT book. Um, so you, you will have to pay like a thousand dollars to get the genuine article of words that we, <laughs> what do you think like the odds are that we will at some point have an NFT of, uh, very bad wizards. The only that we way we have like signed off on at the, the very least. The only way that it would happen is if I die and you <laughs> lie to everybody and say, this is what David would have wanted. <laughs> I think I would have to die too. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, our, and then our our very bad wizards monkey would become someone's Twitter avatar that they paid one hundred and twelve thousand dollars for. I know, and then <laughs> just that immediately rises to like five hundred thousand dollars in like two weeks. <sighs> <sighs> All right, next uh, next time we'll talk about cryptocurrency. <laughs> oh, uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.